and welcome to the Precast, the Presearch Community Podcast. So hi, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Precast. My name is Catherine, and today we get to interview the amazing Sasha Hodder, who is, among many other things, a crypto attorney, but she will tell us more in a second. Hi, Sasha, and thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, hi, Catherine. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be your first guest. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so um, let's get right into it then. Um, first off, please give us a little introduction to yourself. Um, tell us about your current professions, projects, and passions, including, of course, your, uh, your own HODLcast, if you like. Okay, sure. Thank you. Well, um, I work as a partner at WorldBlock Legal, so it's a law firm based in Tampa, Florida that my friend uh, Greg Karch and I founded together in February of 2018, and uh, it's, been, it's been really fun working solely in the crypto environment before both of us were at two different firms where uh, we were getting a lot of clients intra like that wanted legal services on crypto and the firms weren't overly eager to dive into that area of the law. So um, now it's all we focus on and um, we've got to really get to know a lot of exciting projects on the go and uh, meet a lot of great people that are involved in the in the movement. So um, that's been a lot of fun. And yeah, you mentioned my HODL cast. It's uh, just, you know, as I'm exploring new legal topics around the blockchain, I've started writing a blog. Um, just, you know, basically, I started it more for my own reference or anyone else that's um, getting into the crypto legal space that they could have some some kind of resource because a lot of times the questions I come across, I can't find the answers really easily on the internet where traditional fields of law, you know, you type it in and there's hundreds of, of yes. <laughs> yeah. so then turned it into a little uh, like a video blog and a podcast. And I, on top of, I think the, the, some of the legal stuff, it might be interesting for the handful of other attorneys out there, but for the general public, it might be kind of boring. So I try and scatter in, um, you know, some interviews with, with other people that are into crypto as well to kind of make it more interesting, but um, it's fun. <laughs> it's my side project. <laughs> Well, that, that sounds um, really great. And uh, I, I have to say, I've listened to it and it's, it's pretty awesome. So I would highly recommend that um, our listeners check it out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. So as for my first question, and this is something that I like to ask um, everyone in the space, is when and how did you first get interested in the whole blockchain and cryptocurrency space? And especially also what made you stay? So what aspects of the concepts behind cryptocurrencies made you go from Sasha Hodder to Sasha Hodler, like it says on your website, which I think is really funny. Um, so how did you become a true crypto believer? Well, so before, like when I first got interested in crypto, I was working as a, uh, a vice president of sales for a mutual fund company in Canada, Northwest and Ethical Investments. And one of our portfolio managers, Christine Hughes, 
uh, she talked a lot about macroeconomics and the problems with the quantitative easing that was going on in that time frame. It was around 2011 to 13 that she was, um, she was, I was, you know, working under her. Well, I was selling her mutual fund basically. So she actually introduced Bitcoin to her audience um, in 2011. I th or, or whenever it was, the price of Bitcoin was $11, and it was the first I ever heard of it then. And I, I you know, everything she said, I took you know very literally. And she she was a really a really great mentor. And uh, so I continued to follow it, and always felt like I was missing out because I didn't know how to buy it or to to get involved. And I joined some local meetups in Canada, but uh, I was always traveling and I never actually went to them. So I was just in the online community with it. And then I think it was probably 2013, I heard Andreas Antonopoulos speak on the Joe Rogan podcast, the first one he, he did. And that was when I really like Andreas just has such a beautiful way of laying it out and the, you know, the ex excitement behind him and passion and and the idea that this is something that's really going to be transformative um to not just you know the developed world but more so the the people who don't have access to bank accounts right now and uh you know just what what it can mean having a bank in your cell phone so then I still didn't buy in yet and the price kept climbing really quickly, um, you know, up to a thousand dollars. And then I moved to, I moved from Canada to the United States to start my law school journey. And I was looking for part-time work. So I thought, well, why don't I try and get involved with crypto this way? And, you know, I can learn from people that are actually involved with it. So I started working as a, uh, as a compliance officer for a Bitcoin ATM company Coin outlet and through there that's when I started um, getting paid in Bitcoin and I started learning all about it um, it was you know it was a real challenge at that time because Bitcoin hadn't yet been classified as um, it, the property classification came out shortly after I started working for them so then it was a question of whether selling Bitcoin at an ATM machine is that like the same as a vending machine transaction when someone buys a bag of chips when they buy Bitcoin or is it the same as, you know, is it money transmission, which involves a whole, you know, licensing process with FinCEN. And um, so, you know, that determination and so state by state analysis, that was kind of what, what I started off working on. So it was a good, a good introduction. And, um, and I guess what made me the believer uh, is just, you know, I started going to conferences and started listening to all these different people speaking about it and just saw the excitement behind it all. Like there are so many very smart people working on this, you know, all the time. And every conference you go to, you see more and more developments coming and it's just moving so quickly. Like one, you know, one week in Bitcoin world is like a year in traditional business. So I just, I just love it. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. It's it's moving so fast and nonstop and around the clock. It's 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 pretty crazy. Yeah, but um, yeah, that's great. And uh, I love that you mentioned uh, Andreas Antonopoulos because I'm a huge fan. And I recently got the chance to meet him at a developers conference. So that was pretty great. Um, yeah, and he he he's such an amazing human being, and he is so um, humble and down to earth, and he. He really believes in his mission and that's, uh, that's great. So yeah, I get where you're coming from is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so you're a crypto lawyer. So obviously, I want to uh, know your thoughts on the current situation regarding uh, regulations. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a bit of a um, of an American theme here, but um, maybe also internationally. And uh, what would you say are the biggest challenges on the one hand, but maybe also the biggest opportunities uh, when it comes to law and regulations versus blockchain and cryptocurrencies? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I can I can answer more from the American perspective, but I mm. think that the American perspective kind of applies to a lot of people that at least want to sell to America, because if they want this giant market that's here, they have to apply, like, conform to the American laws or just block all American investors, which makes a fundraising campaign kind of difficult. Um, so the way the way that I see it and the way I'm advising my clients around the ICO space is, well, there's I guess we should back up a little and look at when we say regulation, there's a lot of different forms of regulation for for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and they're all different like Bitcoin itself. I think one of the best features about it and one of the things that I was most excited for with Bitcoin is that it, you can't regulate it. It's, um, you know, it's it's beyond regulation. If people are using private wallets and not using exchanges, it is still you are able to be anonymous with it. and although there are a lot of developments from companies like Chainalysis and different organizations working to destroy the anonymity that exists with, with Bitcoin, if someone has been very careful with how they're operating, like using, the, using just Bitcoin, then because of its decentralized nature, it's still regulatory resistance, I guess. If you're using anonymous wallets, there's not really an easy way for someone like the IRS to know whose wallet is whose. Um, but the IRS has come out and said that it's a tax, it's taxable like property back in 2014. And in Canada, I believe they haven't actually called it property yet. So it's not something that's, that's actively being taxed. Um, and then in America, the SEC, who governs securities, are, have come out. They haven't actually made a formal, like there's been no case law that has said that an ICO, so an initial coin offering, now those are different than Bitcoin because they're done from an organization. It's not this anonymous group of computers that you know move the currency back and forth it's one centralized organization usually and they can try and be as decentralized as possible but there's usually people behind it whereas bitcoin has you know the anonymous satoshi nakamoto behind it um and it wasn't sold it was mined so all the and all the other coins that are mined they they're considered a different um, entity than the ones that are sold through an initial coin offering. So if the, if the coin is mined, it's, it's in America governed by the CFTC, I think. Like nothing is exactly clear on this. This is just what you can get from different statements coming out from uh, various regulators. But since there's been no case yet to determine it, this is, you know, this is my take on it, is that if it's mined, it's not going to be a security. It's a commodity. But if it's sold through an initial coin offering, that creates an investment contract that would make it a security. 
And the hallmarks of a security are something that the person who buys it believes it's going to go up in value based on the efforts of a third party. So if you're buying this ICO token, thinking it's going to increase in value based on the company's work, then that creates that it's a security. And selling securities in America has a lot of um, a lot of restrictions on it. One being that uh, you either have to register it and do it as an initial public offering, like on the stock market, which involves typically a thousand, um, sorry, a million dollars of legal fees or more. Um, and you have to have a lot of um, financials like you can't just be a startup and get on the um, on the stock market so then if you do it as a private placement which is the typical way that ICOs are starting to go you would do it as a regulation D exemption from reg registration and then you have to limit it to accredited investors and lock the tokens up for a year so that creates a lot of challenges to cryptocurrency companies because we, you know, we don't want the tokens locked up for a year and you want them to be able to, you want everyone to be able to participate, not just accredited investors who are millionaires or um, have income of over 200,000 the last two years. So until we get some kind of definite thing on how to determine whether something is a security or not, there's a lot of companies still operating under the idea that their token is a utility token and then therefore not subject to the securities laws. But I think that's a fairly risky thing to do if your company is not fully up and running. Um, if it's something like a game that you're, it's, fully operational and the users contribute a big part to the project. So if it's something that's decentralized and every person is, um, you know, coming, every person's use of it or contribution to it is helping with the development, then you can maybe get away from the fourth prong of the Howey test, which is that you're expecting it to be, um, you're expecting the growth to come solely from the efforts of a third party. So there's a lot of nuances to it, uh, but it's <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not taking that risk for any of my clients. We're just doing the regulation D until there's more guidelines on it. But I think in other countries, and I have registered some in other countries where we just block America, and then you can do uh, you can do that right the utility token where um, you just you know the person does the ICO by taking in some form of cryptocurrency, usually Bitcoin or Ethereum, and then issuing tokens and uh, you know raising money that way. So some jurisdictions, and I think Canada is one of those that you don't have to follow all those um, securities law protocols because they haven't come out and said that these tokens are actually securities. So it's a, uh, it's quite a, quite a, you know, interesting landscape, I guess, because every country is doing it differently. And I think it's going to lead to some countries becoming leaders in the space and other countries that are slower with the regulation, you know, falling behind. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I guess it, hopefully that answers the question. Um, of, you know, I maybe went off on a bit of a tangent there on the ICOs, but I think that is the biggest challenge right now is the ICO market, or at least it's the main thing coming coming across my desk. No, uh, absolutely. Great, great summary. I mean, this is such a complex, um, you know, topic, and uh, that, that was a pretty great summary, I think. Um, 
And I guess if I if I'd have to sum it up, there is like two one could say main issues here is that uh, first of all, you're you're kind of trying to apply old rules to new mediums, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are no new rules yet, or they're they're in the prog and they're in the process of being created as we speak, right? Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that you have that like cryptocurrencies and blockchains are. Um, per defi definition, um, you know, international or they're they're non-national. They're um, you know they're, they're borderless, yeah. if you will. And uh, regulations are always something uh, that's you know, happening on a, on a national level for for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we'll see. It's just very exciting times, and uh, I have to say I, I admire uh, the crypto lawyers because uh, I guess. It, in the, the you know law space this is still very very new and um i think you have to be quite courageous to actually um you know take that on so uh, kudos <laughs> um no really <laughs> um okay so um we've talked about the state now um and i'd also like to um hear your thoughts on where do you think we're headed in the next let's say five years when it comes to uh, you know everything that we've just talked about like regulations um that's one thing and also i would like to know what your colleagues in the law community uh think about cryptocurrencies how do they feel about it in in your experience what is their attitude towards it well um i guess i can answer that in two parts so the first one as to where we're going in five years i think I think what we're going to see is a lot more decentralized projects that don't fall in any jurisdiction or people become more and more innovative of how to avoid being in one, you know, in, in the negative jurisdictions or the jurisdictions that aren't as friendly uh, to cryptocurrency and, you know, the decentralized exchanges. I think we heard recently Binance is coming out in Malta with a decentralized exchange and there's already some, you know, on counterparty, the, there's already a decentralized exchange. And when you, when you have no one to go after, it's pretty hard to, to sue someone on it. So from a, from a regulatory perspective, I think companies are going to start really treating that as the highest um, priority when they're forming the business. And, um, and I, I hope I'm not coming off, you know, uh, anti-establishment or anything like that, suggesting that everything <laughs> is uh, decentralized because, you know, there have been a lot of scams in this environment and it is maybe in one sense good to have regulation to hold some of those people accountable. But I think in this community, we have a lot, it's not, the regulations are there to protect the mom and pop investors who get um, maybe swindled by, you know, I think back in the 80s, you know, anyone that saw Wolf of Wall Street, like that kind of environment of people calling with high pressured sales pitches and things like that, we're not seeing the, well, the company's sales practices um, that I've seen haven't been that aggressive. And the people that they're reaching are people that are already into cryptocurrency. Like there's no way to go on and easily just buy into these ICOs. You have to know what you're doing. And I think by knowing what you're doing, you kind of take on the risk yourself. So I think that the decentralized um, way of doing it is a better, a better model. For, for crypto companies going forward. And in the next five years, I, you know, I really hope we see a big takeoff with, with 
cryptocurrency for the people that are unbanked right now. Um, and we see more adoption of being able to buy things with cryptocurrency, you know, everywhere I go, I always ask just to kind of be funny, like if I'm paying for my parking or at restaurants, it's probably annoying to, to the people, but I say, oh, can I pay with Bitcoin? Just, and everyone always tells me no, or gives me a funny look. And <laughs> I think in five years, that'll be more normal that, that we can pay for things with, uh, with cryptocurrency, or I certainly hope so. And, um, and then in terms of how the colleagues in the law community feel about cryptocurrency, well, um, last week I had the opportunity to give a presentation to the Florida real estate uh, attorneys, the Florida Board of Bar Examiner um, group for real estate attorneys, and they were not very welcoming. And it was kind of interesting to me because it was the first time I've, in the last six months, I've been so engrossed in the crypto community that I haven't really talked to a whole lot of people outside of it. Um, all my clients are in crypto, my coworkers and uh, my family, and, you know, all my friends pretty much. Uh, it's a, a lot, I'm, I'm surrounded by believers. And then all of a sudden I'm at this uh, conference and getting all these questions about how the blockchain can be hacked and, you know, reminding me about tulips and stuff. And I was like, <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah. <laughs> thought everyone was, you know, uh, excited about this and they I think that I think a lot of people maybe are afraid of it or afraid that it's gonna take their jobs over or or just you know if it's it's something new like people probably complained about the internet before before it came or you know if you're a fan of Andreas you've probably heard him talk about when automobiles were created and uh you know someone had to walk in front of the automobile in london with a red flag because they called them pedestrian killers and uh, <laughs> yeah. but i think it's kind of like that right now with bitcoin like people just if they don't fully understand it they they might be a little afraid of it um and then same thing with my the last firm i worked at you know, I, I had, because I had been working for the ATM company the previous couple of years, I already, and gone to several conferences, I kept getting new clients in that wanted me to work on their crypto project as soon as I got uh, licensed as an attorney. And um, my old boss, he wasn't comfortable with with working with me working on those projects under his firm's name so it was kind of it that i found that surprising too or a little um well he just said you know this is what we're focused on and it was insurance law and you know crypto wasn't wasn't that focused so he didn't want to move into it which you know everyone has their has their specialty so but it was i found that interesting too he did let us take payment in cryptocurrency for a few clients like a few small projects that i worked on um but it wasn't something he wanted to move into and i know my partner greg faced the same thing at his his former firm too so i think unless you're one of these you know people that are entrenched in the community you don't like it or you a lot of them their general attitude might be one of avoidance rather than adoption I see. Yeah, that, that, that's actually pretty much what I thought. And also, I, I really had to laugh because when you said that you, you, you ask if you can pay with Bitcoin everywhere, like I do the same thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I do think it annoys people. But um, yeah, I, I think it's just a way to 
raise awareness and spread the message and just to get people, you know, to, to get curious about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, the, the tulip thing. Sorry, one second. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> no problem. I should have put that on silent, my bad. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's an issue. Like, I, I was pretty afraid that my cat is going to meow, one of my cats. But uh, they're sleeping, so all good. Um, yeah, but um, back to the topic. So, so the whole tulip thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, actually, the, the tulip bubble wasn't a tulip bubble either, right? So just to get that out of the way, and I will link the article um, that proves that in the description. So everyone. Oh yes. <laughs> um, I think you'll like it. It's a, it's a great article. Um, yeah. Um, but I, I think it's, it's, it's just this psychological issue. What, what you said, like, if you don't know something, you're easily scared of it. Right. And I think that's what's happening with, um, with a lot of people, also lawyers. <laughs> um, so my next question is probably uh, especially interesting to Europeans. So shout out to all the European listeners. Um, because in your latest article, you talked about the European GT GDPR, so the General Data Protection Regulations, right? Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so as of May 25th, it went into action that anyone that's dealing with any kind of any European clients or collecting data from any European clients had to give their whole data protection policy an overhaul. And uh, it's, it was kind of tough, tough. There's also penalties, you know, for not not complying with this. And some of the main uh, points of it were just that if you're if you're collecting data the person has to know exactly what you're collecting why you're collecting it who you're giving it to whether you're selling it and they have to have a way to opt out of it so if if, if they were a previous client of yours and they're no longer a client they can ask you to delete all of the data that you have on them and you have to do so and then there's a difference if if you're the company but you're you hire someone else to control the data or have give anyone any access to the data that person has to comply with it as well and uh, i think what was happening was sometimes companies that were given the data like a secondary company that was maybe sending out emails on your behalf or marketing material on your behalf and would have this whole email list would be going on and selling that email list to other people that might be interested in it and uh that has to stop according to the um, gdpr so i think it's i think it's a step in the right direction for sure um, not all my clients thought so. <laughs> like it was, a, you know, they have <laughs> yeah. a little bit cumbersome to try and overhaul your data, even if they weren't selling it. They had to update their privacy policies and, you know, take a real good look at how they're managing the data. But um, I think it's an important thing to be looking at too, especially after we see things like the, um, you know, the breach at uh, Equifax and and I mean, there's a lot of breaches of data all over the place and. Europe is so different from America with their data protection even before this like they um, you know for when we're doing the AML KYC stuff you can't collect a passport or a driver's license from an, a European person like that it's just against the law there in certain certain areas you can't you're not allowed collecting that information off them is too sensitive so um, I, I like the way they do it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm sure that it's annoying for a lot of companies, but it does uh, have its perks, right? Um, so, yeah. And if it's, if it's sensitive data, like something to do with the criminal nature or health nature, they have to hire someone who's been trained in data management to, to manage that data. So I think oh. that that's a good step too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, Okay, so my next question is something that I also um, really like to ask people because, you know, a lot of times you hear people say, well, I don't care if, if anybody gets my data because I ain't got nothing to hide, you know? So my question would be, uh, why do you think we need decentralized and transparent alternatives like research, for example? Um, and how would you convince people that privacy and data protection actually matter? Well, um, it's, it's just mind boggling to me to think that one entity like Google or Facebook, you know, they, they have so much data on us and they make a lot, you know, they can, who, who knows exactly what they're doing with the data. We just have to trust them that, you know, that they're using it effectively. But if you look on the ads and everything, you know, they're so specifically geared to us that, uh, it's, I, I just think, you know, no, it's nobody's business what we're searching all the time or every keyword that we put in and um, whether we're searching for, you know, illegal stuff or not like that, it just shouldn't be like, that's, I think what a lot of people say is, oh, I'm not doing anything illegal. So, so who cares? But, um, you know, why should they be able to make so much money off, off of our searches by selling you know, whatever clicks we're going on. And uh, then when you have a decentralized search engine, you know, it's open, it's transparent, and it gives the person searching, um, you know, a way to actually use their own data to, to earn tokens. So that's such a better model, in, in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, it gives the ability to fund, fund new projects or just a, a much better overall ecosystem than, um, you know, the way it is right now with us searching and one or two companies getting all the benefit from it. And, uh, and if, it, you know, whether you're, I just, I, I just hate the idea of whatever, every single thing that you look up, like what if you're having a health issue and you want to search, you know, about natural cures for that, then, then Google knows that you had that health issue and, you know, that can come back and play 10 years later. If someone breaches it, then they find out or it's just, um, it's just dangerous. No, I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And, um, and after all, like I always refer to, um, to the cypherpunk manifesto where it says privacy is not secrecy, right? Those are two different things. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Sasha. <laughs> um, so for my last question, and it's a little bit of a tricky one, um, I would like to ask you, what do you think do the lawyers of the future, um, will they actually have to be able to code to, for example, provide smart contracts uh, for things like wills and inheritances and stuff like that? Do you, do you see that for the future? I don't know. Um... <laughs> I think there'll be a lot of resistance of people not wanting to learn to code uh, to do those things. But what I, what I think might happen is that 
the way that, you know, when originally we had to build websites, people needed to code to build them. And now you can go on things like Squarespace or, you know, it was pretty easy to make a website without knowing how to code because the code is behind it. So I think maybe some kind of technology like that will be created where the lawyer can type in the words and then those words will be transferred into a smart contract on the back end that the lawyer doesn't have to see. But I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. So, so kind, kind of like a, the WordPress of prenups. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I think actually uh, uh, some, some projects are, are already working on this. Um, but yeah, uh, I agree. But I, I think it will take a lot of time to, to get there. So. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, there's still going to have to be some way to litigate over things. Like, I don't think we'll just, you know, end all disputes with smart contracts, although we, you know, we might be able to alleviate a lot of it with if everything's predetermined and it just goes one way or the other, you know, at, at mm -hmm. the happening of a certain event. Um, I still think people will try and litigate over other issues, so there'll still need to be um, lawyers involved somehow. <laughs> Or yeah. lawyers trying yeah. their, <laughs> their own path in it, so they don't get cut. Um, absolutely, absolutely no. We we still need lawyers. <laughs> lawyers are important. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I could go on forever, I guess, but uh, I think at this point we should uh, wrap it up for today. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time and uh, joining us today. It was very interesting and I, I learned a lot of new stuff. So thank you so much, Sasha. Oh, thank you. And thank you for all the work you guys are doing over at Presearch. It's, uh, you know, very innovative and I think possibly life-changing for the way that we interact with the internet. So I'm looking forward to watching you guys as you keep developing. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's so nice. Yeah. Um, everyone in the team is really working very hard and it's a great community. So um, yeah, we're, we're very excited. It's, it's one of the most uh, active chats on all of, all of Telegram that I can see. So you're, you know, obviously doing something right to get the community involved now and uh, you know, everyone's excited about it. Yes, absolutely. It's amazing. Like um, we just hit 150k beta users, which is absolutely mind blowing. So yeah, it's, it's very exciting. And I'm very much looking forward to the future. So yeah. Uh, oh, and also, uh, of course, since we talked about it before, um, if anyone wants to listen to Sasha's Holocaust, which I highly recommend, um, I will link it in the description and also the GDPR article and um, all of our social media profiles because you're very active on there too. So uh, leave a like or a retweet or whatever if you feel like it. Um, and yeah, again, Sasha, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, yeah, have a nice day, everyone. And uh, goodbye. You too. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. Bye. If you like this episode, then please subscribe. And if you want to stay updated on everything pre-search, be sure to follow our social media channels. The links are in the description.